Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Movies Podcast for November. Coming up, we review Silent Running, Lion King 3D and Beauty and the Beast 3D on Blu-ray, as well as looking at the recent Blu-ray release of the Jurassic Park Trilogy. And joining me on the Movies Podcast for this month, we've got Chris McAnini, Simon Crust, Mark Botwright, and Steve Withers. Good evening, guys. Good evening. Good evening, Phil. Evening, Phil. Evening, Phil. And we're going to kick off straight away with uh, Silent Running, and Chris is going to tell us all about it. Yeah, Silent Running. That's uh, Doug Trumbull's classic early 70s sci-fi ideas-laden eco-space whimsy. Um, this has come from Eureka. Um, it's a Region B lock disc. It's due out in November. It's on their Masters of, of Cinema series. Um, looking at the technical side of it before we open it up for a discussion on the movie itself, uh, this comes with an AVCN code, uh, it's presented 185 to 1, and it looks mighty fine, to be honest. There's a fine layer of grain, uh, and the film, so the film has a nice, you know, proper film-like texture to it. Um, there's a lot of dirt removal and noise removal, it's been part of the restoration process and clean-up. Very much like Criterion, uh, Eureka actually detail the kind of processes they've used to clean the, the transferred up. And um, there's certainly nothing horribly digital about it or, you know, overly processed. So it looks it looks pretty good. Detail is very reasonable indeed. Obviously, the, the main star, Bruce Dern, has a, he, he's the main sort of character in it and he occupies most of the screen time, being alone for the most of it as well. Um, his blue eyes shine with um, a kind of obsession. His skin texture is proudly held up for scrutiny and uh, lots of separation in his straggly hair. So, you know, detail in the close-ups is actually very, very good. This is a film full of um, models and miniature work and obviously early days of effects work and, you know, visual effects, which, of course, Doug Trumbull was the, one of the pioneers of it. And, you know, these shots tend to look a bit more, a bit softer, a bit less detailed. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's of its time. It still looks a damn sight better than you've seen it before. Uh, there's a few odds and sods of debris on it occasionally. Some of the star fields and the blacker portion of the, of the screen tend to go a little bit um, sort of wishy-washy at some point. They tend to flicker and fade. It's only a couple of brief instances where that takes place, and it's certainly nothing to dis- you know, distract you or ruin your enjoyment of the movie. Um, and as I say, detail in the costumes and the little robots is, is actually very, very good, very keen. The primary is quite vivid and bold. Um, as I say, detail is, is is pretty good as well. So I think I just said that, didn't I? But there you go anyway. Uh, contrast is pretty good. Black levels are pretty good, apart from the, those occasional little glitches. Um, so I'm very impressed with the picture of it. Um, Eureka, don't tend to muck about with this one. They, they haven't gone down the road of you know, putting in some big remix, you know, 5.1 on it. It's a Lostus DTSMA two-channel stereo mix. And you know, there's no unnecessary boosting or silliness on it at all. The separation is nice, nice and wide. Clarity um, of dialogue is very good, and of course, you've got like Bruce Dern again. Isn't it's a idiosyncratic actor with a very strange sort of um, southern drawl. He doesn't exactly enunciate his words perfectly. You know, he's, he's in character half the time, and there's the danger that his voice could have been lost and submerged. But it doesn't really happen in this. You can't, uh, you know, there's, there's no loss of, of clarity in dialogue even from him. There's a few nuclear explosions in this. They're okay. There's a lot of um, sort of electronic uh, machine noise from the computer consoles and the various equipment that they use, and you know that all comes through very well. And one of the major key points of the uh, the soundtrack of this movie is, of course, the the, the songs by Joan Baez, uh, another you know flower power, very eco-aware sort of character from the, the 60s and early 70s. And her songs obviously really come across exceptionally well. Should you happen to like them, you'll be in um, you'll be in seventh heaven. If you don't, well, that's kind of tough because it's going to fill your room. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a great transfer, both you know video and, and audio, really bring the film sort of to life. Now, extras wise, we've got a commentary track from Doug Trumbull and Bruce Dern, 
there's a, a great making of uh, which lasts 50 minutes. Now that's quite a long time, and the, and the thing about this one, it's filmed at the time, so it's a retro vintage um, documentary, and it's fil- and, you know it's sort of warts and all, fly on the wall style. Um, there's a conversation with Bruce Dern, which is just him sitting there for 11 minutes discussing making silent running. Uh, there's a trailer. There's a lavish 48-page collector booklet which shows a lot of behind-the-scenes um, photographs. There's an isolated music and effects audio track. Again, that's in DCS, uh, Lossless 2 channel. Uh, that's, that's pretty good. So you've got the music there and, and the odd little effects bouncing through. Very nice indeed. It's not a bad little package overall. And the film is, uh, well, I think most of us have seen it here. It's a perennial favourite on, on TV during the 70s. That's when I first caught up with it. It was always on BBC Two or something late at night. And uh, it was one of my, you know, the first eye-opening sci-fi movies I saw pre-Star Wars. Uh, the story is, as I say, a massive you know, eco-flavour to it. It's a warning about saving the, uh, the environment. It's in the future. The Earth has been defoliated. We've lost all plant life. Um, so the last surviving forests, albeit they're actually just big gardens, these things, have been blasted up into space on these uh, flotilla of starships um, to be looked after and tended until the Earth is able to uh, to nurture them again. So uh, Bruce Dern plays the you know this botanist spaceman who's a um, you know leading a, mon- a monastic life up there looking after these plants and uh, waiting for the day when he can go back and bring you know plant life back to the Earth. That's basically the story. Yeah, I always um, wondered why they sent the plants out to Saturn, though. <laughs> it wouldn't have been easy to keep it in Earth orbit. Well, the, the film is massively, massively flawed, <laughs> which we will... <laughs> you, you can't avoid discussing this. Uh, yeah, there's no sunlight out there, or very little. And as the, Well, that, the actually, that's a plot movie, point, isn't it? There's a whole point. It's where, a, ma- it's a major plot point. Yeah, he's supposed to be a botanist, but doesn't realise that they need sunlight. It's like, how can a botanist... I know, there's a really crucial moment later on, isn't there, when... Um, because I don't know how far we should go with spoileridge on this, but basically he's going to sort of go it alone. The, the major uh, premise is that after a while they're out there, they've been out there for eight years, and I say there's a few of these starships hefting these massive gardens around. Most of the people, most of the crew, don't seem to care about these gardens, which again is a, is a plot flaw. You wouldn't have these people out there to tend these things if they didn't actually have a massive, you know, sort of from birth interest in plant life, would you? They just wouldn't be like that. No, it, uh, seems, but, it seems un, unrealistic in that sense. But back on Earth, the company in charge of all this, in the time-honored tradition of all these big, vast conglomerates who don't really care to toss about the world or about human life, they just want money, 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 money. And all of a sudden, they discover it's costing them too much to keep these things alive. So, hey, explode them off your ships and put nuclear bombs on them and blow them all sky high. You know... <laughs> So, obviously, Bruce Dern's character thinks, hey, no, I'm not doing this, because, hey, I'm a space hippie, and I've got to look after the plants, you know, and uh, he rebels, and basically he does his own thing, and jets off beyond Saturn to where it's even darker, <laughs> and tries to save at least one last garden. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful message, beyond any shadow of a doubt, but if you view it as a science fiction movie, it's massively flawed, massively, right from the way I go. There's a lot of things which just, you think, oh, no, they got that completely wrong there. However, if you view it as a space fable, the whole thing works very, very well. And, it's a, and it is a lovely ode to um, the environment, all give, albeit given like you know, a galactic shot in the arm. It's and, actually quite long. I mean, given it was maybe, what, 72? It was, it was a few years ahead of its time. Yeah. A few years ahead of its time in terms of the whole eco message, which is obviously quite popular now, but I don't think it was that popular back in the early seventies. Flower power, Maybe man. Just, flower just power. Kicking. Yeah, flower power was more like a bunch of drug taping hippies. This, this is sort of this whole idea of saving the world's resources, which I think has become even more relevant now. But I, I like you. I saw it as a kid on BBC Two, and as a child, I found it incredibly affecting. Uh, particularly the the Joan Baez song at the end with the little yeah. robot, you know, with his watering can. I mean, it was, it was actually genuinely moving to me as a kid. And it stuck with me over the years. And even though you're right, it doesn't make any sense at all, logically. I mean, if there's no plants on Earth, where are they getting the oxygen from? Yeah, there'd be, be no mankind on Earth, would there? <laughs> We'd um, all be on those ships, wouldn't we? The whole, the whole thing falls apart after about 10 seconds of critical thought. But that's not the point of it. Like you say, it's a fable. And, um, and, and as that, it's, it's actually genuinely very affecting. And, and, and as a kid, I absolutely loved it. And it's one of those films that stays with you, I think, forever. And, and you know, if you saw it at a certain age, like we did, 
Um, and I know Mark Commode, is, I've seen him read his, in his autobiography, he mentions silent running and exactly the same. Saw it as a child in the 70s and, and just fell in love with it and it stayed with him ever since. And I think I, a lot of people feel like that when, with, about this film. So, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't stand up to much critical scrutiny, but uh, but I still think it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic piece of work from Trumbull. Well, you, you mentioned briefly there one of the key elements, which uh, is probably why it resonates so well with a lot of people who saw it at that pivotal um, age. And that's the little robots, the drones. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's three yeah. of these things. They which, definitely uh, are, are precursors to R two D two. Yeah, they have, they have wonderful character. The way that they, they, I mean, considering they are, you know, they are robots, they they put an awful lot of character into them, which is really effective. And, and Huey, Dewey, and Louie really do, you know, you really do fall in love with them in the film. And of course, tragedy does strike um, with this little trio of robots, and you feel it because the, he reprograms Bruce there and reprograms these drones so that they uh, respond to him. And they have like almost like a, like a friendship chip in them, yeah. don't they? Which he reprograms. So there's a brilliant bit where he's telling them react. Off, and one of yeah. them is tapping its toe as it's, yeah, it's bored, and yeah. then they're playing cards, and the two robots are showing each other their cards when behind Bruce Dern's back. It was just but really. This is it. They learn how to play funny. poker and cheat. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's fabulous. I mean, the relationship he has with those uh, is brilliant. And of course, a, a major issue there is that, you know, did you realize that it was bilateral amputees who were actually inside those suits? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people, I, I had discussion when I knew I was reviewing this, um, I started talking about it in work and my boss, who's like a, a fading hippie herself, she, she went into this overdrive about like uh, Huey, Dewey and Louie and oh, I broke her heart when she was younger and it, oh, they were fantastic. How did they do them? I said, well, it's actually people inside them. Good God, don't talk such rot, man. You know, she actually, she, did, she didn't use those words. She swore at me, you know, but. You know, I said, no, 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 they did. They're bilateral amputees. They've got no legs. If you look at the creatures, look at the robots themselves, those legs are actually their arms. And, yeah. you know, even though there's no sort of human traits to these things, because they're just boxes, aren't they? They're not like C-3PO. They're more like R2-D2, where it's a completely un unhumanoid shape. And that was all on purpose, of course. They didn't want any association with them to try and get that kind of empathy with something which clearly wasn't human. Very clever trick to do. But obviously having human beings inside them, even though they didn't look like it, that came through. That kind of personality shone through the um, you know, the the prop that they're sitting inside. So it does it does definitely add to it. Um, and you know, it broke my heart when I was a kid. Although having said that, looking at it now, and I've seen it a couple of times down the years, but this I think this was the first time on Blu-ray uh, this, this release that I'd seen it for quite a number of years. And uh I really thought, oh, God, I don't want the family around when I'm watching this because I could just start blubbering. And, <laughs> and, and it, it didn't happen. It really, And it wasn't because I was being cynical about the, um, the the scientific fallacies of it, but it, it was just a lot nicer than I remembered it, a lot cuter and less um, devastating when you know, certain elements do creep in. I mean, you've still got the bit where they, they're looking at their, their, their friend's leg, who's... <laughs> Yeah. See, I didn't say too much, but I know obviously one of them does meet with um, a tragedy, and there's a, there's a great shot of the, of the, the two who were left behind looking at, at the remains of him on, on the, the outer hull of the ship, and, and that that is you know strangely affecting, even though it's also quite comic as well at the same time. But yeah, it's it's a wonderful movie, uh, so long as you view it as a, an emotional fable rather yeah, than the, pure hard hard sci-fi. And like you said, the the effects in it are pretty good considering its budget. I mean, they actually managed to make the budget stretch the budget pretty well by a shoot, shooting on a, the um, aircraft carrier Valley Forge, which is where the ship yeah. they're in gets a name, um, and also by a lot of the research work they did on two thousand and one because originally it wasn't going to be Jupiter, it was going to be Saturn, as in the book. That's right. And so a lot of the research work that Trumbull did on that he used for for silent running for the scenes around Saturn. Um, but they, yeah, I mean the effects. I remember as a kid, this was before Star Wars. So at the time, it was one of the better effects films that I'd ever seen. Um, yeah. And I hadn't seen 2001 at that point either. So, uh, yeah, it, it was, I really found it quite affecting on a number of levels as a child, both because it looked quite good, you know, had a nice sort of realistic look to it at the time. And it had a nice message and it had cute robots. And it, it was yeah, brilliant. They, they strove for that lived in look with the, with the film as well. Unlike yeah, which at the time was still quite gleaming and clinical and white. This is, if you look at it, it's still quite gleaming in places. The machinery that they use, the, the computer consoles are all very clean and, you know, nicely swept. But the guys themselves and their suits, their costumes look pretty uh, grimy and disheveled, you know. And, and you know, the, the real life sets that they're in, which, of course, is the, the real aircraft carrier, Valley Forge, you know, it, it lends a total realism. 
uh, and they got these June buggies, almost like the, remember the banana splits mm-hmm. used to be on TV. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, they used yeah. to bomb around the uh, the Californian beaches in these amazingly dangerous June buggies. Well, they've got these things uh, to to scoot around the vast you know corridors of the Valley Forge, and uh, wow, they look look fantastic. Then you can imagine whiling away, you know, being alone up there. What are you going to do? You're just going to drive around all day, aren't you? Running your own robots down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the uh, those little buggies were actually designed by Doug Tram- Trumbull's dad, weren't they? Something like that, yeah. Were any lawnmowers or something? <laughs> Moving on from classic sci-fi and we move on to new technology and uh, basically some Disney films that are coming up now in 3D. One of them has just stormed the US box office and uh, Steve, you reviewed it. So let's. I think that's the best place to start, The Lion King in 3D. Yeah, Lion King in 3D. I mean, I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the last six months or so about whether 3D, the 3D fad had passed, you know, and um, you know, are people losing interest? Are parents not prepared to pay the extra money to take their kids to the movies and pay the extra money for 3D? And then along comes the Lion King, you know, a, a cartoon that came out in '94. Um, gets a reissue in 3D, takes 100 million at the box office in the states. Absolutely staggering and completely out of the blue. Uh, which I, I'm not sure whether that just says that The Lion King is a great film and people want to take their kids to see it in the, at the movies, or whether there's still a genuine interest in 3D. But certainly, I think that took a lot of people by surprise. And I know a lot of um, there's a lot of dis- debate um, you know, in the media about why exactly it's been so successful in this reissue. But uh, anyway, it was reissued um, a couple of weeks before the release of the Blu-ray. And Disney had actually released uh, two Blu-rays, one, one for Beauty and the Beast uh, with a 3D conversion and one with The Lion King with the 3D conversion. Uh, and I have to say um, that they've done, I mean, I haven't seen Beauty and the Beast, but I know Simon has. Um, I have to say that uh, they've done an absolutely spectacular job. Um, and, and I think whilst I'm quite critical of live action um, conversions to 3D, because when you're taking a real thing, you know, a real person, real, real situations and converting them, the eye, you know, can't be easily fooled and you, and you can spot it's a conversion. I think something like cell animation is, is lends itself much more to the process because clearly not dealing with reality in the first place. It's, you know, it's, it's very, it's a very stylized look to begin with. And therefore the addition of, of three dimensions to it is, 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 I suppose, slightly easier and it lends itself more to that particular process. And I, and I found that, um, first of all, that the, the disc in 2D, uh, as well, absolutely spectacular. As it, as it, to be fair, most Disney, you know, all the Disney, um, the, the, their main card, main animations, you know, have 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 benefited from fantastic transfers. They've gone back to the original cells, done brilliant um, restoration work, uh, and it, it looks absolutely stellar, uh, and sounds absolutely stellar too. And, and uh, is Beauty and the Beast in the same kind of category, Simon? Absolutely, it is. Um, in fact. I would, when I've seen both of them, and I would put Beauty and the Beast in front of Lion King for 3D. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. Um, my, my review's been on site now for, for a couple of weeks, and I actually had a little link in there to uh, the process that was used by Disney. And they developed their own new 3D workstation, desktop workstation, they called it. And they used passive technology to do it, and the, they... They had very, very strict guidelines on how they wanted it, how they wanted it to look in that um, it had to look real. You know, you, a lot of the time you get this 3D and you've got the, the negative pattern, everything's sticking out or going too far yeah. back. What, what they achieved is quite astonishing. Now, I don't know whether or not it's 2D. So we know it's flat. Are we being more generous towards it because it's 2D? We know it's 2D. So you know, subconsciously our brain's thinking, oh, this looks fantastic in 3D because we knew it was in 2D. Or is the process that good? Um, and I'm still undecided because when you see these things, I mean, you, you can tell from the liking, and the liking is fabulous. There are some incredible effects there, you know, just from, from the trees down or when, when they're on, uh, what's it called, Pride Rock and they're overlooking you. Yeah, know, the you look down over the rock. In it, it, it's, it is stunning and it's stunning. But, but when you go and look at Beauty of the Beast, very, very simple scenes like when Belle's walking towards the screen. You've got grass in the foreground. She's walking towards the screen. You've got the house in the background and then the, the, the clouds behind it. Very, very simple scene, but it looks incredible. And, it, and I would say it's better than, than The Lion King. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why cell animation probably benefits more than other, other, other sources is, is that by the nature of cell animation, you know, you're limited in what you can do in terms of camera moves and that sort of stuff because you obviously have to animate every camera move. So, so it's not um, like a two D, like a two D live action film where you've got the camera whipping around, and lots of cuts and everything like that. It tends to be with animation, it's a bit more, bit more um, sort of um, paced out. So, um, I think that lends itself to the process more. 
um, than um, than a, than a two D um, live action film would, or even possibly a two D animated film, CG animated film. Because I know the first three Shrek movies were converted in with a similar process, you know, doing a two D three D conversion, as opposed to the Toy Story movies where they actually went back to the original files and created the second eye of you, you know, as if you were doing it when you do a 3D CG animation now. So they went back and did them from the very beginning, which is a very time-consuming and expensive process, which is why they didn't do that for the Shrek movies. But the results on Toy Story, because I saw them at the cinema, were absolutely incredible. But once again, it's interesting how, uh, even though they weren't actually made with 3D in mind, just because of the nature of 2D filmmaking, you still have a lot of things you know, coming towards the screen or lots of depth that you put build in because it's the grammar of 2D filmmaking as much as it is 3D filmmaking. Uh, and often it lends itself to that effect, even though it was never the intention originally. I know The Lion King was the first Laserdisc I ever heard um, in Dolby Digital AC3 through a Yamaha 3090 amplifier, and that was back in 1995. Yeah. And I, I can still remember the demo room I was in when I heard that, and my jaw was on the floor. So in terms of the Blu-ray, uh, how does it sound? It sounds a 7.1 mix, and, and it, it does sound absolutely spectacular. I mean, obviously, animation, animated films tend to lend themselves towards great sound mixes because obviously everything's been created from scratch. Um, but that's not always the case. And, and certainly Disney have done a great... I mean, they've had in the previous um, DVD reissues of their movies, they've had um, sort of home, home theatre mixes for the, for the home. Which have been, you know, take, taking the original 5.1 mix from the cinema and actually um, remixing it specifically for a home theatre environment, and so they've been pioneers in that sense. And and I'd say that um, certainly that the Lion King 7.1 mix was fantastic, really, really good. Great balance between effects and music. Obviously, there's a lot of music in the movie. Um, dialogue's always crystal clear and, and on centre speaker. It was it was a really immersive um, sound mix. And I, I don't know about the Beauty and the Beast. Was that similar, Simon? It was uh, incredible. Yeah, really stunning. Properly surround. The effects come from every direction. The songs and the music is you're really central. It's yeah, it's spectacular. Like you say, Steve, spectacular. I mean, Were you, you know, dancing around the room, Simon. <laughs> uh, no. Did you, did you feel human again? <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't particularly like that song. Uh, you know, it, that, it, that was in the special edition, wasn't it? Which, funnily enough, hasn't been animated into 3D. It's only theatrical. Uh. There was a, a musical number, extended musical number for the Morning Report, which they put into the previous uh, DVD release, but is now uh, only an extra. It's not part of the film. They've, they've gone back to the original theatrical cut for um, for the for the 3D conversion, which I guess makes sense. The, the thing with Beauty and the Beast is I, I can't watch it now without Montgomery Burns yes. and Be My Vest, yeah. Be My Vest, Be My yeah. Vest. Yeah. It just yeah. completely ruined it now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But I have to say the opening number in Beauty and the Beast, I thought it was at the time fantastic, and, and um, certainly on the, on the DVD it sounded fantastic as well. Like you say, with the home theatre mix, basically all they do is they take the uh, the curve out of the yeah out of the high frequency. Hey, hey, <laughs> they, they, do, they do at least make an effort to create something yeah, totally. for the yeah. home theatre environment, which is fair enough. So in terms of cell animation or, or uh, other Disney animations, what can we expect uh, in the future, Steve, in terms of 3D? Well, the only, the only film at the moment that I'm, I know is definitely coming out is actually a 3D conversion of um, of Finding Nemo, which is going to be released early next year, which would also explain why Finding Nemo hasn't been released on, uh, on Blu-ray yet, because all the other Pixar films are available on Blu-ray. But um, this actually be interesting because uh, obviously Finding Nemo being set underwater and there's like particles in the water, and, and it should really lend itself to 3D brilliantly. Actually, it should look absolutely spectacular in 3D. Absolutely, we're quite excited about that. There's no reason why they couldn't convert any of their 2D cell animation films. Yeah, any of them. Could, obviously, uh, I suppose they. I mean, perhaps the reason why they've chosen Beauty and the Beast and Lion King partly a because they're two of their best uh, features, in my opinion. Um, and also, they were two of the first to have some CG within them. The Woodley yeah. Stampede was CG generated, and the Dance in the Ballroom was CG, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, the background, sorry, was CG at least. Uh, so maybe they, maybe that sort of process helped uh, lent itself more to the, to the conversion process than just normal normal um, set animation. But anyway, certainly a complete, um, for my money, uh, a, a roaring success in terms of the uh, the actual content. Um, both, uh, you know, the four disc set um, with the 3D version, the 2D version, all the extras from the DVD, plus new additional high definition extras. Um, really, really nice package all round. I mean, I'd thoroughly recommend it. Yeah, incredible packages, incredible. And before uh, before we leave the subject of 3D, I mean, it's been announced uh, 2012 for the Phantom Menace in 3D. 
Yeah. A- anybody really excited about this or what? <laughs> <laughs> does, does anyone care? <laughs> yeah. Never mind. No. No. Oh, like I said, I want the spaceman uh, and King Arthur and a cat from outer space in 3D. <laughs> <laughs> and Steamboat <laughs> Willie. Uh, I mean, I hate conversions, to be honest. Um, what I'm excited about is The Hobbit, which is being shot nat- natively in 3D. Um, that should look great. But uh, I've got no interest. And, and it's 60 million frames per second or something silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 48, 48 frames per second. second yeah. yeah, which um, is going to be interesting to see. Uh, I mean, anyway, in the cinema, you, you see it at 48 frames per second, but it's doubled up from the 24. This is 48 single frames. Yeah, it should it's, be. Well, I don't know. It's, it's, obviously, it'll have a smoother move motion. Will be smoother. Yeah, but is um, it? Go, but is it going to be like a soap opera? Will it look like video? Yeah, that's yeah. the question. Yeah. Uh, so but, anyway, we're we're going to move on from that. So uh, those discs were highly recommended, as is Silent Running. So let's move on to our discussion point, which is uh, probably the biggest disc release that's happened in the last few weeks, and that is the Jurassic Park trilogy on Blu-ray for the first time. And um, I know I got my box set last Friday. I, I take it you guys have been purchasing as well? Yep, I spent last yep. night watching all three. <laughs> I spent all week watching. You bought all three in one night? Yep, yep. Was uh, that's, overkill, just, it? that's nothing. I, I, did, hey, I did all the Potter films did, in one day. Do you think you bit off more than you could chew? Peace <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>. and <laughs> cake. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess we, we've got to look at the Blu-rays first of all. Um, and I know that, Chris, you've just reviewed uh, the US edition for the site so maybe you can quickly go through um the three films and and the technical details of that yeah well they're, they're all um god what are they, are they they're vc1s aren't they one there's, there's a lot of vc1 uh encodes at the moment he seems to be coming back with a, in a vogue because they've just done it must be universal themselves because they all seem to be universal titles using vc1 anyway um these are films that are meant to have some kind of um, fantastic swanky new scan on them but if you're asking me, they didn't get that because they still look edge-enhanced, um, slightly boosted. Uh, resolution isn't perfect. Uh, you know, I'm going to go for the downside of them first because there's plenty of pluses as well. But um, you know, they didn't look as sharp, as clear, as vibrant as I expected them to do. Um, being you know a tentpole release um, such as Jurassic Park, which is huge. Um, and a massive release, obviously, for Universal. And Spielberg, come on. Now, Spielberg's supposed to have overseen this. But uh, if that's the case, why is there edge enhancement on it? I've heard, after I posted the review, I heard, um, oh, yeah, he has supervised it. And they had a new scan done in 2011, which is this year. And uh, But why would there be edge enhancements? Has that been done after the scan? Why would that be? You know, that, this look, this smack to me of the old masters being just spruced up with a bit of artificial sharpening. Uh, just to make them look a little bit crisper and cleaner and sharper. Um, oh, I'm really laying into these, aren't I? And I must admit, you know, when I first put Jurassic Park 1 on um, early in the week, I thought, oh, God, that looks... What, what's up with that? It was grainy. Now I don't mind grain, but the grain seemed a bit extreme in some cases. I was looking for a DNR button, and I thought, oh, my God, what, what's happened to me? Um, I watched it through, and then I watched it again, and I kind of realised that what I was looking at was pretty much, apart from the uh, the boosting and the sharpening here and there, I thought, well, you know, this is this is an older film and it hasn't been spruced up and rescanned, but this is pretty much authentic to how it probably should look. Um, I don't remember how it looked at the flicks, obviously. Um, I didn't see it on its recent reissue. I don't know if any of you guys did, um, but so I can't comment on that side of things. But detail was certainly there. It's certainly, you know kicks the um, the top bits off you know, any pre- previous release that I've ever seen of it. Um, so close-ups, yep, a lot of detail there. Um, depth of field isn't that fantastic. Three-dimensionality, you know, obviously in the 2D spectrum here, um, isn't grand, not in the first movie. Although I would say it is in uh, Jurassic Park 3, where it seems to... Well, I thought the image seemed to be a little bit better, a little bit smoother. Because um, I, should, I should specify that the grain seems to um, intensify in some shots in Jurassic Park. Um, detail seems greater in some shots in Jurassic Park, but not in other scenes. Depth of field seems better in some scenes, but not in other ones. It's a bit of an inconsistent transfer as far as I'm concerned. These issues are addressed a little bit more in Lost World and uh, Jurassic Park 3, but they have their own issues as well, where I think they're more consistent with their, with their grain fields, which seem fine, uh, light, but they're pretty much, they don't seem to um, spike in any way. Um, and depth of field, I say, even though like, 
Lost World seems um, a bit softer because of the way it's been filmed anyway. Uh, that seemed a bit greater. The depth of field seemed a bit more consistent. Uh, again, Jurassic Park 3, it seemed even better again. And uh, black levels were universally yeah, great. I didn't have any problem with the black levels at all. Contrast seemed a bit boosted. Um, and I will say that contrast in, in certain scenes in Lost World, I had a bit of a problem with them. Uh, they just seemed to, they, they blew out the whites a little bit too much. Um, I cannot remember. I think that was deliberate, Chris, to be honest. Was it? I have not I gone back. I mean, choice by the, cast, the director of photography, because it's the same director of photography he's worked with now in every film since Schindler's List, uh, Janusz yeah, Kaminski. Kaminski. Uh, it was a tendency, I think, to to do that with uh, with his with his whites. Yeah, uh, another thing is he uses a lot of uh, diffusion. Um, yeah. So a lot of diffusion right. filters. Well, in it's front. a bit soft. They, which well, is why it looks a bit soft. The scene with Malcolm and uh, John Hammond at the start of Lost World. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that explains the bit where they discover his daughter's stowed away and they're on top of the cliff because the um, you've, you've got three quarters of the screen is, is actually you know in the foliage and you've got the, the trailer and the, uh, the scientific lab um, is there. But they're on the edge of a cliff and you can see the skies behind them in, in like sort of like the, I think the top left of the screen. God, how pedantic can I get? And that seems to be blown out to me. Um, it's sort of warping out the, um, the edge of the delineation. I mean, again... Is that down to the photography itself? It, it's a, it's I, it's a mixture of that and CG because that was uh, the shot on the the cliff edge was actually filmed on a soundstage, um, so a lot of that is CG. Well, I'll just go and leap into that hole I've just dug for myself <laughs> and cover myself over, <laughs> and I won't Stop. see any harsh whites down there. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> okay, but, sound wise, sound wise, well. If, Come on, this is this had to be awesome, didn't it? I mean, these rocked the house and changed the um, you know the, the game for sound design when they first came out, especially Jurassic Park. And you would expect nothing less than you know to be blown out of your out of your socks with these. And indeed, they are. I mean, they're, they're in DCS HD MA 7.1. Um, it certainly fills the um, the the extra channels. You've got a lot of well, it's, you just dropped right into the middle of action aplenty. Dinosaurs roaring at you, uh, the floor dropping beneath you, your rib cage getting pushed back with the base levels. It's everything you want from um, a massive, you know, large-scale action blockbuster. Um, the panning around the, the, the speakers is seamless, totally transparent. Um, the wraparound, it, it's, it's stuff is hitting you, especially in the first two movies. I, I, you know, surround stuff in the third movie is still there, but I didn't notice it quite so much. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it was just overkill. I don't know, but. Um, you know, you certainly no room for complaint there. I don't think uh, dialogue. I think I had one or two issues with the dialogue. I thought maybe it was down mixed slightly or l- l- just a little bit drowned out by the uh, the bombast. But again, that could be just par for the course with a movie like this. Uh, certainly, there's no glaring issues, and in fact, you'd be nothing but you know, wonderfully impressed by the you know the, by the way it's been handled. You really do feel this stuff taking place, and you're there. My God, your sphincter will tingle when the T-Rex <laughs> roars. You, know, you will suffer that rather skin-bristing effect, which could even be around the sphincter as well, thinking about it. We know when the velociraptors do their horrible little squeak, squawk, yelp noise. Yeah. And I like the sound. You know when they, uh, they jump up and they, they, they just miss them, and the, the jaws go, you know, I can't do it, obviously, but you know what I mean? They just, the jaws clack together when they've missed. That's nice, too. Um, there's a lot of niceness to this. <laughs> well, bloody you, awesome. You got to remember, I, I, Chris, that um, you know Jurassic Park was the film that launched DTS. Yeah. Um, you know, it was the first film that was uh, made theatrically for DTS, and cinemas weren't allowed to show it unless they had a DTS sound system. So, it was probably the film that brought uh, digital sound into cinemas in the early nineties. Was was this film, um, and the fact that Spielberg uh, was. Now, was he a shareholder or was he just yeah, a... Yeah, he, 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 he is a shareholder. He may so, still be a shareholder. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, was And then it was Gary Rydstrom that did the, the sound mix. You know, you don't get any better than that. So we should have expected nothing but the best. Well, we got it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I, I would say we got it. It's awesome. Um, surround activity is, is definitely there. The uh, separation is fantastic on this stuff. Um, but it is, without a doubt, it's the, 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 the base bombast, which you're going to... Remember most of all from this. My favourite bit. Uh, now, again, when I first put this on, I don't know what the hell happened to me. I was disappointed at first with the, the way the picture looked, and I thought, well, I'm going to go straight to my favourite bit then. And I, 
where you first hear the T Rex is on its way, basically, and the glass of water. You know, you, know, you all know the bit I mean. Mm-hmm. And when, the, when they, you know, the footsteps are getting closer and closer, that thud, and I thought I was waiting for this, and it just didn't seem to hit me with any sort of impact. Again, when I watched the film again, you know, I was thought, what, what was I smoking before? Because this was awesome. As those footsteps are approaching, you know, this detail in the bass, there's actual movement and maneuverability with the bass. You know, it hits at the front, boom, but you're getting the ripple effect floating behind you. You know, it's, it's good. It's beautifully engineered stuff. And, you know, I was, as I say, forced to eat my words. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it is outstanding. Even, like, the, the one everyone hates, Jurassic Park 3, which I actually quite like. Oh, I like it. I think it's, it's, it's great fun. It's, it's enjoyable hokum. It kind of strikes the balance that the other two don't really get. You see, well, I'm branching into the movies themselves now. But, uh, you know, I've always had a, had a... I'm not the biggest fan of the first movie for several reasons. Two of them being the kids, one being Dickie Attenborough. Um, <laughs> cannot, the dodgiest Scottish accent stand in the history of cinema. All the bits they're in. Even though the little lad, the lad's great, actually. I mean, I, I should really try to, you know, differentiate there. He has got... He's not that bad at all. But that bloody girl... Oh, God. You know, John Carpenter had the right idea. Shoot them! Shoot the girls before they have any dialogue! And um, But Sally, he doesn't in this, and she survives. Damn, damn. It's a clumsy mix of hard action, mean-spirited um, animal nature-fights-back violence, and schmaltz and sentimentality. Sits uncomfortably together. I know a lot of people love this, but it, I find it a bit awkward. Second movie... Again, seems to struggle with this sort of thing. Uh, you've got a bit, a bit of an eco message there, you know, saving the uh, the dinosaurs and, you know, the, the mummy and daddy T-Rex are trying to look after baby T-Rex and all this. And, of course, you've got the, you know, um, Jeff Goldblum's character getting come to terms with his daughter growing up and being, you know, she kicked off the gymnastic team, but, my God, she can't have boot a, a raptor in the face, can't she? And you've got all these issues. Uh, there's a major issue with San Diego, but we'll, we'll leave that till later on. Um, but part three, again, it has all this family issue and sentimentality to it, but it seems a little bit more balanced because it's a, it's a shorter movie. It cuts the chase pretty much immediately and it doesn't let up. You've got you know the dysfunctional mum and dad who learn to you know get along again and rekindle their love for each other whilst out trying to save their wayward extreme sports son. And, you know, it, on paper, that is oh, the most contrived, ridiculous pile of pap you can imagine. You know, the, the worst excuse to get, get us back into a Jurassic Park movie. But I think it actually quite works. It's not shoveled down your throat. It's, it, all this happens on the hoof. And I, I quite like the way it, it's done. And you've got no lousy tacked-on ending to it either. Oh, and I've got, unless you count the Marines. Oh, Jesus, that's, that's bad. That's cringeworthy. But overall, Jurassic Park 3... Not a great film by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, none of them are, you know. It's also <laughs> a very funny film, actually. It's got some quite good jokes in Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot lighter, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. more of a laugh, and the effects are very good, and it's got quite a decent, decent mix of dinosaurs. And it's, uh, the characters it's got some new stuff, yeah. Pterodactyls. Yeah, Spinosaurus and that sort of stuff. You've yeah. got some decent actors in there as well. William, yeah, William C. Macy, Macy and, and, and uh, what's her face, Tia, what's her face? Tia Leone. Tia Leone. yeah. Actually, interestingly, because I've just reviewed Ice Age 3, I think they've got the same plot, basically, <laughs> and, and the same dinosaurs in them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Rip off. Yeah. Uh, let's go back and, and obviously look at look at the films and, and obviously their place in film history now that they, they are quite old films, which makes me feel it's quite old. years old, Jurassic Park, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was Jurassic just... Park, obviously, you know, it's got certain things it's, you know, it's, it's going to be known for in, in history. One is obviously introducing photoreal CGI effects. I mean, I know they did it in The Abyss, and they did it in Terminator 2, but those were like liquid metal and water. These are living, breathing creatures. Um, and there's only about six minutes of actual CG footage in the entire film. But, um, you know, it, at the time, it was revolutionary. I remember going to see it at the cinema the day it opened, and it was just incredible. Yeah. Uh, as you say, Phil, it also had a DTS soundtrack. So it was like, along with, I think the year before, Batman Returns had a Dolby Digital soundtrack. This was yeah. the first film with a DTS soundtrack. And at the same time that it went up against it, that, that summer was the first film with, with an SDDS soundtrack, which was um, Last Action Hero, which obviously got murdered at the box office by mm. Jurassic Park. Um well, Jurassic Park no, was the, the true cinema experience, wasn't it? That was an event, proper yeah. event movie. You know, audio-wise, it blew you away. Effects-wise, you'd seen nothing like it before. 
Uh, it just was the all-round, you know, summer blockbuster, you know, massive, massive experience that everybody had to share in it. You know, and there's yeah, okay, I mean, been a few of those since then, but that was that was impossibly huge. I saw it day one as well. Yes, and, so uh, did I. Actually, with with the woman who would end up being my wife, and we we were surrounded by kids in there, and um, during that the, the famous sequence of it with the T Rex, you know, breaks loose and it's attacking the air, the tour car with the kids in it. I can't even. I wrote this in the review as well, but I mean, I genuinely feel it's worth repeating. That felt so intense. You just didn't know where Spielberg was going to go with that. Is he going to? I mean, Jen, I was sitting there thinking, is he going to kill these kids? Is he? And looking around the audience, there was, you could tell everyone was thinking the same thing. What certificate is this movie? Should kids be watching this? What What's going on? When's it going to end? It really want, now. You know, obviously, it's used to it, and they've seen kids in jeopardy in other movies since then. But you know, that seemed really, really groundbreaking for me uh, in a mainstream movie. I think also, that that scene's lost a lot of its impact basically because it became a demo scene that yeah, everybody demo. used and you've seen it over and over and over again. I was talking before about the first Dolby Digital soundtrack I'd heard on a Laserdisc. That that scene there was yep. the scene that made me go and buy my first ever subwoofer um, <laughs> when it came out on well, Laserdisc. That was my first DTS, um, Dolby, uh, yeah, Laserdisc with DTS same, soundtrack. Same here. Part. And I went out and bought a Railstorm the same day. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but I think the thing about Jurassic Park now is that because of CG effects now so commonplace and everything else, it's probably the last time we're ever going to go to the movies and be that, you know, how the hell did they do that? Which was what I was thinking at the time. You know, yeah. I, don't, I don't think we're ever going to be that surprised or that mesmerized by effects again. The way we were yeah, back at the that. time, those dinosaurs seemed yeah. real, didn't they? You really well, yeah, thought there were, were dinosaurs on screen. They were dinosaurs. They have got dinosaurs. Screen, amazing. Where they found I mean, them, God only knows, but they've got them. Yeah, the most, but, but the most right. surprising thing, sorry, Steve. Uh, the most surprising thing, though, is that there's only 96 effect shots, CG yeah. effect shots in the mm. movie. The rest of it is is Stan uh, Winston's work. Yeah, animatronics, um, yeah. and that's why it still stands up. Yeah, because totally. It's mostly animatronics, uh, and they're really, really good. I watched, like I said, I watched it last night, and because there's only a few CGI effects, I think if, if they'd gone over the top of the or use CGI for everything, it would look awful now. Yeah. But luckily, they they kept it in check. Just use it when they needed it for full body shots, and then used the animatronics for everything else. And the, marrying the two together perfectly, it still stands up to this day. It looks fantastic. Well, um, apart yeah. from that, the the first scene where they're in, they're in the park and they, they meet the dinosaurs for the first time, you've got a couple of dodgy ones there. How do they how do they not notice that massive great? Big <laughs> uh, I was just going to say <laughs> that. By the way, that's, that's the beginning of where I think, oh, you've dropped the ball there. You know, my God, they're going to see that, but they haven't noticed. They're on top of a ridge, and the entire valley in front of them is full, <laughs> full of, of dinosaurs. Notice <laughs> that? Yeah, so, I mean, the thing again, that always bugs me as well is that helicopter shot. Um, when they come up to the island, and then the next shot is the helicopter coming through the valley. They want to shoot that 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 cameraman. That is the worst oh, pan yeah. in cinema history. And also, <laughs> when you were talking about the transfer, Chris, that was probably the worst uh, part of that transfer was those shots, which were obviously second unit shots. Um, yeah. No contrast to them whatsoever, and just didn't look the same as the rest of the rest of the film. But I think Spielberg was at the top of his game and shot that one. I mean, he really does deliver the goods in terms of excitement and, uh, and you know, just awe. And um, even though the film itself is just a remake of Westworld with yeah. dinosaurs. Another, <laughs> another theme park. Same plot. Exactly the same plot. Yeah. Well, Michael Crichton, you know. I yeah, I know. Yeah, of course, Michael Crichton wrote, wrote and actually directed Westworld. He directed well. Westworld, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think Jurassic Park... Will be remembered, you know, obviously in film history for a number of reasons. And well, Jurassic Park is one of those movies that I mean, I've I only gave it seven out of ten. Um, I love certain bits of it, but I I cannot really at the time, you know, I was blown away at the time. But I still come out thinking, well, that's not that great a movie for me. Those bloody kids, and I want to punch Dickie Amber right in the face, you know. Just <laughs> I just don't I don't buy it. I don't believe him in the least. You know, you you have a T Rex. Yeah, we have a T-Rex. Well, because we're recording, I can't say what I really want to say right now, but oh my God, you know. Well, it well it's, it's, it's just a bit further <laughs> on, on from when he says that, when uh, they all get down on their knees. Why do they get down on their knees? Oh. And he gets down next to Sam Neill and he says, I'll show you. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's even worse. Yeah. I'm in too much apoplexy of you know rage to actually hear that all bit. Right, all right, but, but Jeff, Gold, Jeff Goldblum's superb in it. 
Yeah. Brilliant performance. He's so funny. And he's constantly trying to hit on Laura Dern, I think, in real life as well. You know, Lost World, yeah. You know, everyone's head scratching. What is he doing here? We want Sam Neill. I mean, and it is awkward the way he's been shoehorned into it. It, it. It is contrived nonsense. But, you know, I do like the fact that he's there. He's a great actor. You know, and apart from the, the ridiculous finale to it, the San Diego sequence, um, you know, he carries it because he's, he's the unpredictable hero. He's a goofball. He's too tall to be in any movie. That, that, that is the real reason why Spielberg shot 185, not to fit dinosaurs in the same frame as a human. <laughs> it was to get Jeff Goldblum in the same frame. I think that was one of the best posts I ever read on the forums was the only reason he shot it at 185 was so he could fit the dinosaurs in. <laughs> who said that? I can't remember who posted it on the forums. Spielberg shoot, hasn't really stopped shooting in scope for some reason after, um, well, after uh, 1940, oh, Raiders, I suppose. Apart from the Raiders films, he doesn't really shoot scope, which is strange because he's brilliant, you know, great composition. I don't know why he doesn't mm, use yeah, it much. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing was that he was also... Uh, uh, during post but on Jurassic Park, he was shooting Schindler's List at the same time. Jurassic now, Park's post-production was done by George Lucas. He ever yeah, saw it. Yeah. Um, that has to have some toll on you if you're going from, you know, a theme park where dinosaurs come to life and eat people to going back <laughs> to Schindler's List. I mean, that must screw with Nasty you. Something, atrocities, yeah. Yeah, that must screw with your mind, something rotten. Well, I think it affected Lost World a bit because Lost World was his first film after Schindler's List. It was about a four-year break, wasn't it, between the two? And and it's a lot darker movie. Um both and all of stylistically and content-wise, and and I, and I think that you know that might well be the impact of having shot Schindler's List in between the two, because um, they're, yeah. def- they're definitely tonally they're quite different movies. Yeah, it's, it's a more relentless and brutal movie. Um, yeah, it's well. quite quite graphic at times. When the guy gets bitten in half and oh, two T Rexes and stuff like that, it's pretty grim. Um, and uh, you know, I think some of the some, some of the narrative failings, you know, Crichton's fault because I mean it does follow the book reasonably closely. He's the one that used Malcolm as the character, even though he killed him in the previous book. Yeah. He sort of I got better is basically the excuse that he uses in the beginning of the book. Um, it's cack-handed, contrived nonsense, but you know, it's, yeah. it's movies. But, but, I mean, the, the San Diego bit. I know they tacked it on at the last. Oh. It doesn't make any sense because you think, well, how do they? Where's that? Where's all the crew? On yeah. The ship? So the T Rex uh, got out and ate them all, and then got back in uh, again. I think they were, they were supposed to shoot scenes with Velociraptors got on board the ship, and they ate the crew. Um, oh, now I've heard all this stuff before, but the thing is that in the movie, that's not. It's not there. It's not explained. It just makes it seem. Completely but it is quite cool seeing it running around, you know, a city. I well, remember. it should have been its own movie. You know, that that, that always struck me as like, that's okay, part then. three. <laughs> part three would be set in you know an urban landscape. And it would be wrecking cities like you've seen in the old creature features, creature features and Godzilla, all that sort of stuff. Um, but you know, but we might not get to make that one. So let's just shoehorn it into the end of this one. So we give the audience a little bit of what we could have done. It, it no, not for me, mate. Not for me. I just end the movie after the year. They get airlifted, and I'm, I'm quite happy with that. It, it's funny you mentioned Godzilla there. Do you think the whole reason they did the San Diego bit was to get that in joke in there about oh, Godzilla? Well. Do you think the whole reason? I don't know about that. <laughs> oh, I think that might be partly. I'm, I'm obviously playing it. devil's advocate there, but it, 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 it just sticks out like a sore joke. thumb. There's an in-joke in Lost World where you see a video store when it's running yeah. by in San Diego, and you see um, Schwarzenegger in Hamlet, which is a direct reference to him doing um, Hamlet in um, Last Action uh, Hero. Last Action Hero, yeah. Well, I'll be honest. I, I never really warmed to Jurassic Park. I think it's it's one of those films where if you were lucky enough, a, a little bit like um, Star Wars, if you were lucky enough to see it at the cinema at the time, then it would have been a, an entirely different experience. Uh, for me, I, I didn't see it at the How cinema. How old are you, Mark? Old enough. Were you like 30. 10? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm 30. I just didn't see it at the cinema at the time. You saw the dinosaurs when you were really walking the around here. your age to go and see it at the cinema if you were 12. <laughs> yeah, well, my point being that if you see it on the big screen, then it, it must have seemed you know, something more, uh, the the kind of grand spectacle and the like. And uh, because I suppose the first time I saw it wasn't like that, it just never really had the same impact with me. I, I You know, a bit like what Chris was saying, I never really liked the, the Dickie Attenborough character. I didn't hey. always, always felt it was a little bit schizophrenic. I didn't really understand what it wanted to be. Was it going for the kind of creature feature kind of ethos? Was it a monster movie? Was it going for kind of, you know the the family elements kind of felt shoehorned in there, and it just overall. I think when I look back at it now, people continually mention how it broke new ground, 
but if you strip that away from it it's it's a pretty standard film i mean it's it's formulaic and there are various scenes that don't really flow that well you know i, I don't really think that some of the grander scenes necessarily integrate with the the family elements that well and i just never really felt it had that same spark of kind of spielberg magic i've got to say it was absolute genius uh doing mr dna though just to just to get the audience up to speed with what was oh, going on. God. Hello, John. Hello, John. Oh, God. Yeah. That's another bit I absolutely hate. <laughs> Hello, Jeff. I'm biting my tongue here. I really am. <laughs> oh dear. But see, the thing is, you know, it's a lot of things going on with that movie and the whole concept because wasn't this whole idea of get a finding mosquitoes trapped in amber? That was very prevalent at the time, wasn't it? That was. Well, I think when you wrote the book, anyway, that was the idea that we were going to look into doing this, weren't we? So there was a lot of, and DNA was huge in uh, the news, gene manipulation and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I love so, the way that the film is brushed under the carpet with using supercomputers and virtual reality machines, <laughs> but they don't really explain anything at all. It's just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, that, that's Let's get on with of, the dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, they caught that kind of crest of the wave. They caught, you know, the kind of current zeitgeist and played on that. And I think that's yeah. one of the reasons why people flocked to see it so much. But when you when you look back at it, you know, the, those films that try and base themselves on, on some kind of cutting-edge science that eventually kind of fades away, you lose a certain something there. You know, the, the people made a, a big thing about, you know, Spielberg going back to having this creature. You know, some people were mentioning Jaws and the like, that it, it would be kind of some kind of blockbuster that would, you know, feature on some kind of monster. And I suppose because you've got so many dinosaurs milling about the place, you 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 never really get the same sense of of danger from all of them. There's never really the same threat, and with the with the whole family elements, I, I never felt that they were going to get killed. I never really felt they were in any any real danger. It, it felt like a safe family film with a few grisly bits thrown in just to try and kind of hint at danger. But ultimately, it was it was just a grand spectacle of of technology. I think it it, it does attempt to um, throw a spar in the works of you know conventional family movie narrative because as we say there's some grisly bits in there i, I wish there was there was more so <laughs> i know certain people i wish had died horribly in it <laughs> but um well in the book know, hammond does die yeah well exactly um if only if only they'd stay true to Actually, that in the book he gets eaten by compies which is what they do to the character dita in the second Dieter, film peter storm yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting the points you raised there, Mark, because around about the time that the film was released, I mean, it was only something like, was it four or five years after they'd just cracked the human uh, genome? Um, it was around about the time of Dolly the Sheep, uh, you know, they the cloned the sheep and so on. So I think you're right there. It was feeding into stuff that was prevalent at the time and that was going on at the time and this new science and so on. Um, Jurassic Farm. But I actually took the I actually took the 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 film as I don't think he was trying to make a monster movie. I think he was trying to show these creatures as as being real um, living animals. And I think that the whole point of Jeff Goldblum's role in that was was to point out that just because we can do something, should we really do it? And uh, which I think was was a bit of the point of the message behind the first film. Oh yeah, and and that's actually one of the things that I, I kind of hate about it is that it, <laughs> it, well, it it's exploring a scientific topic. It does it in a very light way. It glosses over all the complexities and kind of plays that slightly almost eco angle. And you know, should we really play God? And you think just you've just made a fantastic it. film from it. You know, virtually everyone who's reading about this kind of thing, you know, as you say, uh, mosquitoes in amber is thinking, damn it, I would go. I would go to see dinosaurs if they brought them back. <laughs> you know, there are stories about, you know, crossbreeding, um, you know, crossing the DNA of elephants and, you know, getting the, the DNA of a woolly mammoth and that kind of thing. And and people wanted to see that kind of thing. And, and I just think it, it takes this overly simplistic kind of uh, message of the animals get loose. It's also Rather quite a bit saying, build bigger fences, well, you idiots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite sermonising too. Both of the first two films go on at you a bit about the, the, the ethics of what they're doing, which is why I think I like the third one because it just doesn't none of that rubbish. It's just let's get on with having you know excitement and fun and dinosaurs and action. Yeah, these things um, are going to kill you, you know. So let's just run away from them. It, and it's, but, it is just a streamlined pair to the bones action movie, isn't it? No sermonising. Yeah, totally, totally. Just 
out and out thrill ride, and which I don't think it works really well in that sense. Okay, so I mean, obviously the the trilogy's now out; it's out in Blu-ray, and there are discussions ongoing that there's going to possibly be a fourth film. So, um, is is that cashing in, or is there something more interesting that that it could pop? possibly do with uh, the Jurassic Park franchise? No, it's cashing in, purely and simply. But, um, you know, <laughs> we'd all go and see it, though. Well, Mark might not, but we'd go and see it, though, I'm sure. And it's rumoured to have Sam Neill again, isn't it? And Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Sort of heard. So, you know, uh, I saw yesterday. That's where I got it from as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'd see it, just for that reason alone. But it's pure cat. What are they going to do with the story now? What are they going to do with it? You know, are they going to? Are they realise that since there's no plant life on Earth anymore, they're going to, have to send these dinosaurs into space as well? You know, on, on new silent running vessels. So, what are they going to? Where are they going to go with it now? It's just going to be, as Malcolm so rightly says. You know, at the beginning it's always ooh ah, and then all of a sudden it's it's screaming and running. That's what you want from this. And this is the thing about the Jurassic Park movies. You do start off with that wowing awe factor and then straight into action which also, is fine so a new one is going to be now. more the same but if he made it say slightly more adult if he added in more gore you'd go to see it though wouldn't you mark i'd go and see it anyway um i, I, I feel i would probably feel swept along by it having just watched these movies now um i'd quite happily even though i've, I've dissed fair elements of them i would quite happily watch a fourth one tonight if it was available um, yeah, I would. They're action-adventure movies, and I kind of thrive on that. I also love taking the, the Michael out of these movies, too. Great. <laughs> so a fourth one, yeah, it's not, it's not a, a horrible, you know, um, bad idea, but it is for the cash. Let's, let's just hope it's not as bad as Indiana Jones 4. Mm. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> let's have them all, all cloned from, uh, from Rex in Toy Story. <laughs> 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 Running Rampage in uh, Al, Al's Toy Barn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was reading this morning after, after watching it last night that uh, velociraptors were actually completely covered in feathers uh, they think now yeah and they were only 12 inches tall oh yeah, turkeys blown <laughs> another <laughs> hole through it hasn't yeah. it yeah oh, but I, 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 they didn't know that at the time I mean that's only recent yeah, discoveries yeah, I, that, 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 they've, that but, they've actually discovered that so I think uh, in terms of design and stuff like that I mean what are they going to do now there's you know, Stan Winston's not around anymore. Hey, I mean, I've just thought of what they could well, do with it. You know, all those rumours about the, um, the the giant great white shark that used to live in the seas in prehistoric times, the Megalodon. Maybe it could be set at sea. They'll have like a deep blue sea style uh, aquamarine research station or park. And one of those buggers grows and gets out. Have, have yeah. they not already done that? That uh, Was it not Megalodon versus no. something or other? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> this will be Spielberg, for God's sake. <laughs> all right, so, all right, so there's got to be a golden retriever in it then. Actually, Phil, since you mentioned um, Stan Winston passing, and also Michael Crichton, for that matter, uh, on, the, on the extras, there's quite a, there's a nice little new documentary, high-def documentary in six parts across all three discs. And at the end of the last bit, they do sort of you know, mention about Stan and, uh, and Michael Crichton passing away. And yeah. I think that's another reason why they haven't done anything with the film since is, is because with both of those guys now dead, um, and there were two of the major, you know, contributors towards those films. It kind of takes away, I think, some of the impetus of wanting to do it at all, really. Yeah, I mean, uh, Stan Winston, absolute genius. I mean, if you ever see any of the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff on Terminator films and and the Jurassic Park films and all that kind of thing, I mean, the guy was an absolute genius. Right when you that. see the see the animatronic uh, models of the T Rex and that, when you see the 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 shots behind the scenes uh, where they're taking breaks between filming and 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 that kind of thing. It looks real, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You, you've got you've got nine puppeteers behind it, but the thing is, it moves and it, it, the eyes move and everything. It just looks real, you know. It's and I, I don't think we've seen any of that type of work since because CG's just taken over. And nowadays, you know, directors will just say, "Well, make it CG." You know, I'm, I don't want models on on stage or anything like that. I'll just make it CG. Yeah, which is a shame, isn't it? Really, because. There's just definitely an added sense of realism. Like when the T-Rex eye comes up to the window and the little girl puts the torch in its eye and the, and the pupil dilates, or yep. contracts rather, not dilates, contracts. Um, that, yeah, it's real. It, there's a bloody dinosaur outside that well, window. we're going to have this debate fantastic. again with the thing, aren't we? Because, you know, the, the, the yeah, yeah. latex and prosthetic effects in the original are going to be replaced largely um, by CG in, in the prequel, sequel, remake, whatever you want to call it. it is. 
But I think there's another another reason why you've not seen a, um, a Jurassic Park movie for a good number of years. Spielberg, uh, who's the one you want to see behind this, he's not been in that kind of mood, has he? I mean, look at his look at his movies over the last few years. He's branched out a hell of a lot. Obviously, you know, uh, the serious stuff, but the sci-fi stuff he's done, like Minority Report, AI, and uh, War of the Worlds, have been far, far darker, far more serious. Uh, they've not been, you know, the pop sensationalist summer blockbuster type of movie. Okay, you've had Indiana Jones, but Lucas was hugely behind that as well. Uh, oh, I mi- am I missing something out? Has he done something? Tintin. He's just done Tintin. Oh, it? yeah, and it's bloody, getting panned. Bloody something Tintin. Oh. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather see Dickie Attenborough in 3D <laughs> with them two bastard kids <laughs> <laughs> than Tin. Fin Tin. Oh, no. I'm sure kids are going to love it. <laughs> I, I think. <laughs> My kids don't know it exists, so keep it quiet, will you? <laughs> I I think you hit on a very valid point there, Chris, because I'm racking my brain here, and yes, AI and and Minority Report were good films, and uh, War of the Worlds. Yeah, I mean, they were they were good films, but they weren't classic Spielberg they're not, films. They're not fun. And, they're not fun I, movies, aren't no, they at all? And I think Jurassic Park was the last of um, him at the top of his game. I mean, I don't know what you guys think, but the, well, nothing I, I that's come that's after that. Yeah, I've seen list, basically. He's never been the same. He's a much more serious filmmaker since then, I think. I mean, there was Munich as well, wasn't he? Did Munich. Oh, yeah, Munich. Oh, great film. Yeah, great it's, film. it's a wonderful movie, yeah. Great film. Oh, again, I'm a star, very, very he did dark. make some pretty serious stuff after, after yeah. Schindler's List. Yeah. And Private Ryan. Oh, he's just done War Horse, though. That might be more classic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But then that's First World War, isn't it? Isn't it First World War? War in the trenches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Lots of death of plenty, but a heartwarming story of a horse, at it, you know, at the centre. Uh, yeah, maybe, well, that, maybe that's it. Maybe War Horse is going to be a stepping stone back into the mainstream, please everyone, bring the kids as well, sort of movie making that he did of old, maybe. You know, uh, and the Jurassic Park 4 would... Um, so is he actually supposed to be make, directing it? Is, do we I, know I this or is this it. another rumour? So it's not even behind it then. <laughs> so that's uh, Jurassic Park, the Ultimate Trilogy. The review is up on the site now, avforums forward slash movies, and go and check out Chris's review. And Simon, just to wrap up on the, this month's movies podcast, uh, what do we have coming up on the site? We've got a, a fair few bits, Phil. We've, um, Kaz is going to be looking at The Crow, which is the, the latest release. Um, fabulous film. Um, he's also going to be looking at the Jack Ryan movies, starting off with The Hunt for Red October, um, which is, is due this month. But he's also going to be doing the other three um, as well, but they'll be coming in later months. Alan's going to be looking at The Guns of Navarone. That's the American version, I think. Um, well, I know that Chris is going to be looking at the UK version there, so we get a comparison between the two. Um, Steve's going to be looking at Rio in 3D and Hidden in 3D, two vastly different films there, as well as The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Uh, he particularly wanted this film. I'm not quite sure why. Brilliant Forgotten film. Dreams. Brilliant, Brilliant film, Brilliant. okay. Another 3D version there. I myself, I'll be looking at the, uh, the Narnia film, Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That's in 3D. And Chris, um, we're coming up to Halloween as we record this. Um, he's got zombie flesh eaters. He's got yes, house by the cemetery. Film. He's got Horror Express. Gorgon Horror Express. Is that coming yeah. out? Oh, Absolutely. Horror Express, which is a, a fantastic precursor to the, the thing, anth- believe it the or not. Anthology one. It's about, what? No, that's um, Dr. Terror's House of Horror. No, no, no. There's one about train too. No, oh, never mind. Horror <laughs> Express is the one with Taylor Ballas playing a Cossack. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's well, awesome. <laughs> you've got Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing as these two um, eccentric British scientists out in the Siberian wastes, and they, they they find the missing link, or so they think. But he's not, is he? He's actually an alien, and his intelligence can take over uh, other people, and he moves throughout the passions of the passengers of this trapped Siberian train. And it's great. It transforms. Yeah, yeah. It's part of the zombie great. movie. It's part of the thing. It's a really clever, um, but awesomely low budget and often forgotten about um, horror gem. It's great. Great movie. Okay, so with with that in mind, plenty to look forward to. So uh, log on to the website, read the re- read the reviews. There's good stuff coming up. So when a new movie is published, uh, then check out our Twitter feed at AV Forums and uh, that'll give you a direct link or you can subscribe on the main movies page uh, to upcoming reviews. 
And remember, we also publish three other podcasts. On the 14th, you can catch up with the latest games. On the 21st, it's the Home Cinema Podcast. And on the 28th, it's the Podcast Extra. And don't forget, the Movies Podcast is back on the 7th of December. And we're going to talk about our best Blu-rays of 2011. So all I need to do now is thank the guys. So thank you very much for your time this evening. Cheers, Phil. Pleasure. Phil. And this is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening. And we'll see you again soon. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.